Well, our, our sermon text today is Psalm 30. If you don't have a Bible, it's written, it's printed on the back side of your bulletins. And I'll ask that you stand this morning, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Holy Word. Psalm 30. A psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up, and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask God to bless his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we see the rain outside and we're reminded of Isaiah 55, which says, tells us that as the rain goes out and the dew, that it, it always uh, brings forth, it always produces and bears fruit. It never comes back void. And even so, your word is just like that. Your word never returns to you void, but always accomplishes the thing for which you sent it. And we ask this morning that you would work in us by your word, by your scriptures, that you would sanctify us by your truth, for your word is truth. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Work in us by your spirit and lift up the name of Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, you know, we, we tend to go through a psalm every first Sunday, and I, I really enjoy doing that. I hope you appreciate them as well. And um, you know, I, I find myself always thinking every week when I start working on a psalm for, for a sermon is, Whatever one I'm working on, that's my favorite one at the moment. You know, it's, every time you think, well, that one's going to be hard to top, you read the next one. And, and this, this has been uh, no exception here with Psalm 30. You, you know, you'll notice many of the Psalms, as you read through your Psalms in, the, in your Bibles, uh, a lot of them have no superscription whatsoever, no title above it. You know, sometimes the, the editors of your Bibles, they'll put their own titles, and, you know, those aren't, those aren't inspired. Those aren't part of the scripture. They're added just like the, the chapter divisions and the verse numbers and things like that. Some of the Psalms, many of them have no title or superscription above them at all. Um, some of them, you know, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, some of the most well-known Psalms are examples of those. No, no superscription, no details, no title. Not even, there doesn't say of David or anything like, like that. Uh, many of them have a superscription above them that gives you really no information whatsoever. You know, one of the, a lot of times it'll just say a psalm of David. Some of them literally just really has one word in the Hebrew, of David. That's really one word 
in, in, a lot, in a lot of times in, in the Hebrew text. An example of um, <coughs> Psalm 29 might be a good one, uh, where it just says a psalm of David. It just tells you who wrote it, who the human author of the psalm uh, was. Well, uh, you know, others might tell us something that isn't very helpful to us. Sometimes it'll say what kind of musical instrument that is to be played upon. You know, Psalm 4 tells us, quote, with stringed instruments. Uh, some of them even say instruments that we don't even know what they are. We, we read the Hebrew word, we transliterate it because we're not sure what the word actually is and what instrument it referred to. Uh, sometimes, every once in a while, it'll tell us what tune to play it to. We have no idea what those tunes were. Psalm 22, a well-known psalm of the crucifixion, it says it's meant to be played, quote, to the doe of the dawn. We don't have that tune. If somebody finds that, they could be a, a, a famous Bible scholar if you figure that one out. Well, sometimes, every once in a while, you'll come across a psalm that gives you an important detail in the superscription. And this happens to be one of those this morning. It gives you insight into the background of the psalm. What happened? What historical circumstance, personal circumstance, uh, was it that brought this psalm about? Why was it written by David or whoever else wrote these particular psalms? In Psalm 30, it says this. If you look at your Bible there, it says, A psalm of David, that's the human author, a song at the dedication of the temple. A song at the dedication of the temple. Now, the Hebrew word translated temple there. Uh, can also simply be translated as house. It's not, it's not a, a technical term for temple. It's just the word house. And why is that? Very often the temple of the Lord is referred to as what? It's God's house. The house of the Lord. The house of God. 1 Kings 3 verse 2 is one place where it's called that. There had been no built, there had been not been built a house yet for the Lord. So which house... If you want to dial it back a little bit, which house is it that David's talking about here in this psalm? Whose house is it that's being devoted and that, that brought up the rise of this, of this psalm? Some commentators believe that the house referred to there in our text is actually David's house. David's palace, his royal palace, uh, so to speak. No less than Matthew Henry, a great Bible commentator of years past, held that view and explained that in his uh, commentary on, on the psalm. You know, scripture, if you think about it, is David's palace, was it very significant in the scripture? You know, if you were to read through uh, your Bibles, if you were read, to read through the book of Second Samuel, which tells the main story of David's reign after Saul's death, uh, if you were to read through Second Samuel and look for when David's house, his palace was built, you know, what's the saying? I grew up in a small town. If you drive through and you, what? If you blink, you might miss it. Well, if you blink, you might miss it. Second uh, Samuel 5.11 says this. And Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and also carpenters and masons who built David a house, period, exclamation point. That's it. There's no story that I know of in scripture of, of a dedication of his house. David refers to his house. Remember, he wanted to build a house for the Lord. And David felt guilty. He said, here I am dwelling in a house of cedar, this nice, fancy, furnished house. And the Lord dwells in a tent, the tabernacle. And we'll get into that later on. But other than that, we don't know of any dedication of, of David's house. Some have gone so far as to say that, 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 that this superscription kind of gives a, a, an impetus for us as believers when you buy a house. 
you know, when you, when, you, when you live in a new home, when you move into a new home, to dedicate, you know, in some way that house to the Lord, nothing wrong with that practice. You should dedicate everything to the Lord, everything you have, including yourselves and your families. But, um, but I don't think that practice can be based uh, upon this text per se, at least not directly in this case. Um, so, you know, why do some hold that it's not the temple? There's a reason for it. It's not really in the text. Who built the temple? Solomon, the son of David. David did not build the temple. In fact, God didn't let him build the temple. And we'll see why in a little bit. Um, David wanted to build a house for God. He wanted to build a, a permanent house in a sense, not just a tent. First uh, Chronicles 28, 2-3, it says this. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for the building. But God said to me, You may not build a house for my, for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. And in fact, Second Samuel 7, God goes as far as to say, you know, why are you asking about building a house? I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I'm going to build you a house. And it's not the house of cedar. It's, it's the house of his kingdom. And he's promising really in that covenant, not just Solomon, but he was promising to send Jesus Christ, the real king, the real son of David. Now, while King David was not the one under whose reign the temple was built, he was the one who purchased the property. He was the one who purchased the property. He's the one that made arrangements for where it was to be built and, and arranged for some of the, the, uh, the materials. And the details of what happened at the time of that, where David built the property or bought the property for the building of the temple, those details fit to a T with Psalm 30. And I think it, it goes without saying, uh, I think Psalm 30 is absolutely dealing with the buying of that. Uh, we're going to see the property that David bought for the temple to be built on. This psalm is a psalm of thanksgiving to the Lord when he delivered David's life from the pit. Verse 3, and David's pride and presumption and fleshly security had gotten the better of him. We're going to see that God sent, basically sent a plague upon Israel because of David's sin. And what we'll see from Psalm 30, even if not from the other texts in the Old Testament, that that plague apparently even reached David himself. When David wrote Psalm 30, he wrote it in part because he thought he was going to die. And God lifted him up from the pit. God restored him to life. And so Psalm 30 is a psalm of praise. It looks back upon his sin. You know, it's remarkable uh, how often in the psalms, especially the psalms of David, the man after God's own heart, you know, the psalms... They enable us to worship in all kinds of circumstances, don't they? Every, song, every psalm isn't a happy, clappy, joyful thing. Every psalm isn't a lament. There's all kinds of things. Sometimes psalms are written around the occasion of a sin. Psalm 30 is one such psalm. Psalm 32, we're going to see in a, in a little while, is one such psalm. Psalm 51 was written, why? It was written around the time or around the, the issue of David's adultery with Bathsheba. You know, so Psalms even tell us how to worship our Lord when we fall into sin, when we fall into sin and discipline of our Heavenly Father. Well, the context of Psalm 30, again, it's David's sinful census of the people of Israel, specifically the, the men of the fighting age who could serve in the army. Those are found in two places, 2 Samuel chapter 24, 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And this morning we're going to spend a little bit of time 
uh, if you can pardon me, kind of jumping back and forth between the psalm, Psalm 30, and between those two accounts of David's senses to see what the problem was, what God uh, did in response to them, and how God delivered David even from that, from that judgment. So the first thing we want to look at is the context of Psalm 30, and that's David's sinful presumption in the census. The, David's description of, of his sin in the psalm is found in verses 6 through 7, right around the center of the psalm, which should be instructive to us when you think of the way a psalm is constructed, the fact that the, the middle of this psalm, the hinge of it, is David's description of his sin. It says, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. God blessed David, didn't he? David was prosperous. David was a mighty man. David had a mighty army. God had given him victory on every side and was giving him rest and the people rest from the enemies. And it says this at the end of verse 7, you hid your face. You hid your face. I was dismayed. Nothing, everything's going my way, zippity-doo-dah, and all of a sudden God hides his face and everything changed. David went from, I'll never be moved. God has made my mountain, you know, Jerusalem was on top of a mountain, on top of a hill. You've made my mountain to stand strong, and all of a sudden God hid his face from David and everything was different, wasn't it? Things were going very well for David and for his kingdom. He was enjoying victory over his enemies, relative peace and prosperity. And it was in that prosperity that his pride and his presumption got the better of him. And he began to think that he could never be moved because of it. He thought that maybe he could do no wrong and that his present prosperity, which is nothing wrong with it, but that it was meant to be perpetual. Maybe he thought that he deserved it, that he had built that himself rather than being blessed by the Lord uh, in it. And here in the psalm, he reminds us that what was the cause of David's prosperity? Was it David? Did David earn all these blessings? Was he deserving of all these blessings? No, he says, by your favor, by your favor, O Lord. Favor, it's another way of saying grace. By God's unmerited favor, his grace, that his mountain had been made to stand strong. And, and David, you know, how did David's pride and presumption manifest itself? And, you know, sometimes it's not just when things go badly for us that we're tempted, is it? Just like David here, when things are going well, we're tempted to pride. We're tempted to, self, uh, to self-righteousness and to think that we deserved things. How did David's pride and presumption manifest itself? It did so in his census, his census of the people of Israel. First Chronicles 21.1 puts it this way. Then Satan stood against Israel, and what did he do? And incited David to number Israel. Now you probably are sitting here and thinking, you know, governments do censuses all the time. Our government, what is it, every 10 years or whatever it is, they, they do one. And they're, they're, you know, they could be useful. I don't know what the point is sometimes. But um, it hardly sounds like a, a vicious sin, does it? Just taking a census, just numbering the people of Israel just sounds like something that you're supposed to do in some ways. Why, why, was, it, why was it sinful? You know, I, I don't think this verse or this passage is uh, instructing us as Christians to go protest if our government does a census. I don't think we should quote this text and say, whoop, 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 you know, what God might send a plague if you do a, a census. I don't think that's the, the, re, the point of it at all. Uh, but what was sinful about it? 
This particular census seemed to be about one thing, and that was numbering or counting the potential army that David had. You'll notice that it says David sent Joab, verse 2, David sent Joab and the commanders of the army to do this census. Kind of a strange person to send for a census, isn't it? But you'll see what the, what, the, what the reason was for that. You also might be surprised to see that what was Joab's initial reaction to the census? Joab's like his main general, his chief of staff. And did Joab say, hey, no problem? You, you, you said jump, I say how high? You know, where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to number? There it says uh, in First Chronicles 21.3, it says, But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are, are they not, my lord the king, all of them my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? Joab, for some reason, perceived this, and rightly so, that this was sinful. Joab saw something wrong, something very wrong here, and he tried to persuade his king against it. He said it would incur guilt upon the nation itself for him to do this thing. Verse 6 actually says that the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. Joab wasn't just casually, I don't think this is a good idea, king. Joab was disgusted by this. He couldn't believe he was being asked to do this. And yet King, king David prevailed upon him and he did what he was told. Now, what were the results, the numbers of this census? It says in verse 5, And Joab gave the sum of the numbers of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. This census was a military census. This is David trying to see how strong David is. That's what he's doing. Think about the connection. Here I am, my prosperity, my mountain shall never be moved. Let's see how great I am. Let's see how strong I am. Let's see how strong I am. How able to defend my people I am. Not the Lord, not the Lord blessing and the Lord giving uh, defense and prospering his military conquests and battles, but David. For those of you doing the math at home, that makes 1,570,000 that's well over one and a half million soldiers. Now, if you think about the fact that our current administration in our country is right now in the process of reducing the size of our U.S. Army to 450,000 fighting men and women, that's remarkable. He would have had, at his height, three times the size of our army is going to be. If, what our army, if, if it goes the way it's supposed to go, in a couple of years, our army is supposed to be under half a million. David's army was triple what our army is going to be uh, soon. It's the smallest size since before World War II, according to some estimates, is what ours is. Present-day Israel, I don't know exactly what what David's day was like geographically. Present-day Israel is about the size of New Jersey. That was quite the number of, it seems like everybody was in the army, or everybody was a candidate to be in the army. And I noticed the same census is also detailed for us in 2 Samuel 24. But there's an apparent problem if you think about those two texts side by side. Uh, The numbers aren't the same. The numbers are actually very different between those two 
total. 2 Samuel 24.9 says, And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Now, what's the discrepancy? That totals 1,300,000, so 1.3 million. It's a little bit, more than a little bit less than the other total found in 1 Chronicles 21.5, which said it was over 1.5 million. What's wrong here? Is this one of those texts that makes you nervous? Do you, do you say, oh boy, I hope my unbelieving friends don't get a hold of this one and ask me because I'm not sure what I'm going to tell them. Is the Bible contradicting itself? Some, some unbelievers and skeptics and scoffers would jump to say yes. Look at that. The sloppy Bible it contradicts itself. It doesn't know what it's talking about. It can't even keep the same numbers right from one book to the next. Somebody should have paid better attention. They should have had a numbers guy uh, who was writing these, these books to make sure all the numbers lined up correctly. Well, I, I'll, you, I hope you know by now, I don't believe the Bible's contradicting itself. I don't think there's a problem with this text. But, but you do need to figure it out. We don't want to ignore it. The, the best thing you can do is not to bury your head in the sand and say, well, I don't know what the problem is. I'm just going to ignore it and hope it goes away. hope nobody ever asks me what, what, what the reason for this uh, happens to be. It's always best to approach the word of God in faith. It's always best to approach the word of God in faith, trusting that it is true and trustworthy in whatever it says. And why is that? Because God himself does not lie. Numbers 23:19 tells us that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Titus 1 to 2 says God cannot lie. And so his word cannot lie. It is inerrant in all that it says. And so what we should do, we would do best to be patiently seeking the answers in the text and around the text for what, what the answer might be. Sometimes you and I might not find the solution right away. Sometimes you have to be patient and wait for the answer to come and keep looking and keep searching and knocking and looking into the text but I think the answer in this particular case is to be found in 1 Chronicles 21.6. We've already read part of that. That's where it tells us that Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering. Why? For the king's command was abhorrent to him. This, this census ticked Joab off. He was not a happy camper. He's the top general, and the king was the king, and he knew what the chain of command was, uh, but that didn't stop him from getting a little dig in. And you'll notice, what did he do? He lowered the number. He lowered the number when he went to David and said, yeah, here's your number. And it conveniently excluded a couple tribes of Israel from that number. I believe that's the answer to the question here, is that one of the numbers is the true number. And one of the numbers was the number that was given to King David to take him down a notch, to take him down a little bit of a peg. The smaller of the two was most likely, again, the figure that, that Joab reported to King David. Now, why was the census sinful? We've already seen a little bit of why that is, but it's David's carnal security, his fleshly presumption. He came to find his security and continued prosperity in himself, in the number of soldiers that he had, in the strength of his army, the arm of flesh. You know, perhaps for a time... Uh, Psalm 127.1 was written by Solomon. It was written after David's time. Maybe it was written in light, in Solomon's mind, in light of this. But certainly David knew the truth of it, even if it hadn't been written yet. It says there, Psalm 127.1, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it do what? Labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen 
stays awake in vain. It doesn't mean don't have a watchman. It doesn't mean don't build houses. It means unless the Lord is there ultimately being the builder of that house, you can work all you want and nothing's going to happen. Unless the Lord is watching over the city, the watchman stays awake all night for nothing if the Lord isn't the one watching over the house. It means that we must not rely on those things or trust in them, but primarily rest upon the Lord first and foremost. This text, and, and Psalm 127.1, it's not an argument against having an army. It doesn't mean that we should you know, cut our armed forces in presumption and say, well, you know, if, unless God watches over the nation, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means that we don't trust in the size of our army. We don't trust in the size of our military. We trust in the Lord and do our best and trust him to watch over us. The Lord must build our house. The Lord must watch over our city. You know, and you can take this out of the military context too and put it in a personal context or a church context. We can all, whether as individuals, as families, or even as a church, tend to get our security in our bank accounts or something else and think, well, I've got this, I'm golden. But it doesn't work that way, does it? Your family, your church, unless God is building the church his way, uh, we labor, no matter how hard, we labor in vain if he's not behind the work. Well, the next thing we're going to see from our text and from First Chronicles uh, 21, the account of the census, is that God sometimes hides his face. God sometimes hides his face. What was the result of David's census? Not the numbers. We already saw that. It says in First Chronicles 21.7, it says, But God, not just Joab, but God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. This wasn't a little peccadillo. This wasn't a small, nothing, uh, innocuous sin. And God gave David a choice of, of punishments, didn't he? If you know the text, it's in 1 Chronicles uh, 21, 11 to 13. It says, so Gad, that's the prophet, Gad came to David and said to him, thus says the Lord, choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes with the, while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. The prophet is the messenger from the Lord. He comes to David and says, here's the deal. There's going to be a discipline for this. this is, there's going to be something in, that comes in as a result of it. I'm going to let you pick. The Lord is letting you pick. Three years, three months, three days, uh, you, you decide. And David said to Gad, uh, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So he didn't choose the famine, didn't choose being overtaken by, by his enemies. People were going to die in any of those cases, weren't they? People were going to die in all three of those choices. But what did David say? Let me fall into the hand of the Lord and not into the hand of man. And why? Because there's mercy with the Lord. He may discipline, but there's, there's mercy. So three years of famine, three years of devastation by the sword, or three days of the sword of not of his enemies, but of the Lord. The pestilence, the disease that came upon the land, was an action of the sword of the Lord by the hand of the angel of the Lord destroying. You know, what does that remind you of? 
the Exodus, the Passover, the angel of the Lord sweeping through and taking the firstborn male child of anybody whose home didn't have the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the doorposts and on the lintel of the house. And David chose in his chastisement that of the Lord, uh, the Lord's hand, because there is mercy. Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 11 uh, quotes Proverbs 3, verses 11 to 12 in it. It says this. It gives us an admonishment, you and I, this morning. It says, And have you forgotten the, the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And it quotes Proverbs 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every one or every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as what? Sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, our earthly fathers, as it seemed best to them. But he, God, he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. God's discipline is for our good. It doesn't feel good. No discipline does, but it's for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable or peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Sometimes, maybe you've had this happen in your life already, maybe you know exactly what this refers to for yourself. Sometimes God hides his face. And when he hides his face, sometimes, uh, very often, we are dismayed just like David was that he tells us about in verse 7. I hope you find comfort in that. You're not alone in that. King David, he's always the one that seems to get picked on here. King David, the man after God's own heart, knows exactly what that was like. To have, he's a good man after God's own heart, and yet God hid his face from him for a time and dismayed him. Even our Westminster Confession of Faith, you know, you know it has a chapter on assurance of, of salvation, assurance of grace. In that chapter... It tells us that sometimes our inward sense of assurance of God's love for us may be, quote, shaken, diminished, and intermitted, interrupted, you know, by, among other things, God, quote, withdrawing the light of his countenance for a time. Westminster Confession 18.4. Even our confessional document reminds us that sometimes God hides his face. When we have God's face shining upon us, I think you can attest, we can handle just about anything. Anything that comes your way, as long as God's face is shining upon us, we can handle. But when he hides his face, a true saint of the Lord can't enjoy even the greatest outward prosperity imaginable. You can have all things if you don't have God, if you don't have God's face shining upon you and you know it, even those things are unenjoyable. You can't enjoy even prosperity in this world apart from the peace and the face of God shining upon you. And what was the end result of that pestilence sent by the Lord? 70,000 people died, verse 14 tells us. It reminds me of 1 Peter 4.17. It says, judgment begins where? Judgment begins at the household or with the household of God. 
And if that be the case, what hope is there? What will become of the unbeliever and the one who does not obey the gospel of God? You know, this wasn't intended to be in the sermon this morning, but that, that thing that happened in, in, in up in Oregon where those people, those Christians, were, were martyred for their faith. You know, the unbelievers and scoffers, I don't know, maybe some are so hardened of heart that they look at that and maybe they kind of say, yeah, they had that coming. Or, yeah, those Christian, those religious nut jobs, they had it coming. It's not what God thinks. What should every unbeliever think when they see that? If they had in mind 1 Peter 4.17, it should worry them. If God in his good providence, his wise and holy providence and, and kindness to us even, disciplines us even to the point sometimes of allowing his children to be martyred for the faith and bringing them into glory that way, what is to become of the unbeliever? Think about that. Those Christians that were martyred, if they were in Christ, they were, they were as safe as safe can be even now. Their martyrdom didn't harm a hair on their heads. They're with the Lord right now in heaven. But if God allows his children even sometimes to go through that kind of thing in this life, what awaits those who don't obey the gospel of God. It's a terrible thing to think about. I hope that describes nobody in this room. Uh, but David got caught up in the numbering, and 70,000 people were killed because of it. You know, God kind of made the punishment fit the crime. You want to get caught up in numbers? Let's do some numbers. Let's, let's take you down a peg a different way than Joab did. And as the angel of the Lord was nearing Jerusalem... He's getting ready to think about this. He's going through Israel, and where's his end point? He's not stopping before Jerusalem. It says uh, that he was getting ready to destroy Jerusalem itself. The Lord, it says, had mercy and relented. He relented of, of, that, of that thing and told the angel of the Lord to stay his hand. Verse 15, verses 16 and 17, there we read, And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Can you imagine what that must have looked like? We don't know how big this vision was or whatnot, but how, how frightening that would have been. He actually got, in a sense, the veil pulled back, and he got to see the ultimate cause of what was going on. Earthly-wise, in the, you know, our fleshly eyes, uh, he saw people dying, getting sick by this pestilence and dying. Then the curtain was kind of pulled back and he saw the real reason for it. This was a judgment in no uncertain terms. And the sword was stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth, same word that's used in Psalm 30, sackcloth, fell upon their faces and David said to get to God, was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil, great evil. Not a, not a small thing. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house. But do not let the plague be upon your people. This is Psalm 30 language. David is in sackcloth. He's crying out for mercy to God and God heard his prayer. That's why this prayer is such a call to praise to God, and we'll see that in a minute. The last thing we're going to see is that God does turn sackcloth to gladness for his people when he disciplines. He does discipline for our good, but he does turn sackcloth to gladness. What did the Lord do? What did God do in verse 15? It says, 
uh, we're told the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So he's in Jerusalem, he's got his sword stretched out, and he stops. And he stops over this threshing floor of a man named Ornan. That's where he stopped. The prophet Gad then instructed David to go, uh, go up and raise an altar to the Lord where? On the threshing floor of Onan, Ornan, the Jebusite. The, the spot where the angel stood with his sword out, the prophet is told to tell David, go there. Like, it's probably the last place David would want to go. When you see the angel of the Lord, the one of judgment, with his sword out of the sheath, and God says, go there. That's where you're going to make an altar to me for sacrifice. So David did what he was instructed. He, brought, he bought the threshing floor from Ornan. You might remember Ornan wanted to give it to him. Ornan saw the angel too and was like, get me out of here. You can have it. It's basically, that's, that's not what it says in the text, but I think that's what was going on. Ornan looked up, saw it, and was like, I don't need this. I don't need this spot. This spot's all yours. You want it. You got it. And what did David say? I'm not going to offer something to the Lord that costs me nothing. David bought the threshing floor from Ornan, and it says the text there, built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back into its sheath. What averted the plague? God's mercy. But God's mercy in what? Sacrifice. An atonement had to be made. An atonement had to be made for the angel of the Lord to sheathe his sword. David's life, according to the text, according to Psalm 30, was spared from Sheol and from the pit, Psalm 30, verses 1 through 3, and all of Jerusalem was spared along with him. In his mercy, God accepted the atonement for their sins on that altar. And what's the lesson of this text? It's a lesson all throughout Scripture, isn't it? It's the same lesson that Hebrews 9.22 says. Without the shedding of blood, there's what? There's no remission. There's no forgiveness of sins. It's only in the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, that you and I can find forgiveness and life. It's only through God's mercy in Jesus Christ that our mourning for our sins can be turned into dancing and our sackcloth can be turned into gladness. And we can be called, like this psalm tells us to, to sing praise to our God, to glorify his, his name. And what's the significance of that altar that David made, that the prophet told him to make? Well, that site, that threshing floor, where, you know, it might be ironic that, you know, maybe God was threshing his people at that time in some sense. Uh, God was winnowing his people. But that threshing floor became the site of the temple, didn't it? That's really the main the main point here, the house of the Lord that the superscription of our psalm talks about, uh, the dedication of it was right there and then. David bought that place, made an altar, offered sacrifice, and God had mercy upon his people. It says there in the very first verse of the very next chapter, First uh, Chronicles 22, verse 1, it says, Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God. And here, the altar of burnt offering for Israel. This wasn't just some commemoration spot. You know, like we sometimes, you, if, you go on, if you go back east especially and you go around different you know, cities with famous sites 
and they'll put a sign up. Here is where you know Benjamin Franklin did this. If you go to Baltimore, here's the house where Babe, where Babe Ruth was raised, and they have all this stuff and all of this furniture there and, and whatnot. This wasn't just a famous site. David said this place is going to be the place where the temple, the house of God, is going to be built. And this is where the, the, the uh, altar for the burnt offering for Israel's sins is going to be. Now, is there, any, is there any wonder among us why David was so joyful in Psalm 30? There, there really shouldn't be. Is there any wonder that David was so full of praise for the mercy of his God in this psalm? And David doesn't just say, I praise God. He calls us to praise. This psalm calls you and me to praise uh, our God, same as his God, for the same reasons. We, don't, we didn't have a vision. We didn't have the same situation that David did, at least earthly-wise. But really, we have the same situation. God's wrath upon us for our sins, which were as great as David's and maybe more so, was only averted because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. In verses 4 to 5, David calls you and I to praise as well. It says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. You know, even when God seems to hide his face from his redeemed, his anger is only for a moment. His discipline is not for your lifetime. His favor, his grace in Christ, that's what's for a lifetime to his redeemed people. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy will come in the morning because God will bring it. As sure as the sun comes out the next day and every day, joy will come again. So we sing praises to his holy name, for in Christ God has drawn us up from the pit and given us life as well. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise. Not anything remotely what you deserve, the amount of praise that we are able to give you uh, for your great mercy upon us in Christ, that just as you averted by your mercy the plague continuing in Jerusalem and striking even David, and you spared his life and many others, in an even greater sense, you have spared our lives because you did not spare your son. But you sent him to pay the price for our sins and repaid him for our iniquities in our place. Give us grace, work in us by your spirit. Turn us from our sins even. Give us grace even more though to praise you for your mercy. Help us as we sing uh, on our own with our families or every Sunday. Help us to remember why we sing for the great mercy that you give us in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.